this week we're looking at uh, the latter half of Acts chapter 16 in preparation for the book of Philippians, and here's why. This is where Paul and Silas actually go to this little city. It really wasn't a little city at the time, but it was uh, the, the city of Philippi. And this is how the book of Philippians, the church in Philippi, came to be. And so I couldn't even uh, start going through the book of Philippians without looking at the second half of Acts chapter 16, because it's how the church in Philippi got planted. So we're going to read Acts chapter 16, um, and we are going to start in verse, uh, let's see, 11. And we're going to go through the end of the chapter. Now, let me make a couple little statements as we read here. Um, I preached on this passage, Paul and Silas, back in October, and I focused on Paul and Silas. This time, we're not going to focus on them. We're going to focus on three people. We're going to focus on a lady named Lydia. We're going to focus on a little girl who's a slave. And we're going to focus on a jailer. And here's why. It is so absolutely imperative that you uh, sort of get your head around this. Because I want to introduce you to the type of people God uses when he plants churches. I want to introduce you to the type of people that he selects and he pulls out of the crowd. That he anoints with his presence. That he changes. That he redeems. And that he chooses when he wants to plant a church. When he wants to do a new work. And I think it will be very surprising to you as we dig into this. And then even sort of... um, think through what could some of their lives have been like. So here we are. The other thing that you need to know, setting the table before we actually read this little passage, is out of 1 Samuel 16, 7. I think I have that. Do I have that? Uh, 1 Samuel 16, 7 says, But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not consider his appearance or his height. Let me get out of your way. Do Do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have, say it with me, rejected him. The Lord, hello, there it is. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the, but God looks at the heart. Now I want you to see two things. This whole passage starts out with, but the Lord. I love when it says this in scripture. I love it. There's that little passage all throughout scripture. All of a sudden, everything's like moving down, moving down, moving down the road. And then it says, but the Lord, but the Lord. And that means heaven, the heaven, the kingdom of God is getting ready to intersect with the earth and change everything. But the Lord, but the Lord. It also sometimes says suddenly God. And we're going to look at three people in this New Testament passage that have a but God or a suddenly God or a but the Lord experience. So, but the Lord said to Samuel, do not consider his appearance or his height for I've rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance. There it is. What is it? But the Lord looks at the heart. Can you say with me, but God? Some of you in the room don't know what a hashtag is. Others of you do. But God. It's a little hashtag that goes for social media. But God. Say it with me. Okay. But God. Thank you. And you threw the hashtag on. Okay. Here we are. We're in Acts chapter 16. We're going to start reading in verse 11. And we are going to roll through this thing. Um. Holy Spirit, open our hearts as we read this. Chapter 16 of Acts, verse 11. From Troas, we put out to sea and sailed straight to Samothrace. And the next day, we went to Neapolis. And from there, we traveled to Philippi. There it is. The book of Philippians comes out of this little church, this city called Philippi. A Roman colony and the leading city of that district of Macedonia. So there it is, leading city. Uh, It's a Roman city, anyway, and we stayed there several days. 
On the Sabbath, we, Paul and Silas, went outside the city gate to the river where we expected to find a place of prayer. We sat down and began to speak, also known as preaching, to the women who had gathered there. One of those listening was a woman from the city of Thyatira named, come on, y'all can do better than this. Lydia, there you go, I love Lydia. Lydia is a dealer in purple cloth, and she was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message, and when she and the members of her household were baptized, she invited us to her home. Okay, so just let me pause a second. What city are we in? Philippi. We're hanging out in Philippi. Paul and Silas have gotten there. They've gone to a place to pray, and instead of praying, they end up preaching to a crowd of women. There's a woman there named... Lydia, who deals in purple. We'll come back to that. The Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. Verse 15, when she and the members of her household were baptized, she invited us to her home. If you consider me a believer in the Lord, she said, come and stay at my house. And she persuaded us. Lydia, we keep going. Once when we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a female slave who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. Sounds a little spooky, huh? She earned a great deal of money for her owners by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and the rest of us, shouting, These men are servants of the Most High God who are telling you the way to be saved. Isn't it interesting that you have a demon speaking through a woman and it's speaking the truth? Isn't that interesting? The truth can be manipulative. Interesting, interesting. Verse 18, she kept this up for many days. Finally, Paul became so annoyed. Now, now let me just, this is so important. Um, this translation annoyed doesn't translate to English very well, okay? Um, if you go back to the Greek, this would mean um, Paul was grieved in spirit. Paul was um, uh, he had become, I think, devastated by the um, probably torture that this girl was under, both by the demonic spirit and her slave masters. He is grieved, and then he is, he is I think, annoyed would be a good word for how he's feeling towards the enemy that's controlling her. Does that make sense? But, but truly what the, what the Greek is conveying here is that, that he is moved with compassion for this girl. He is moved with compassion because the enemy is twisted about her mind, and he turns around and he rebukes the enemy in her. Remember when Jesus looked at Simon Peter and said, Satan, get behind me? Was he talking to Peter? No, he was talking to the enemy that was stirring up Peter's mind. You have a similar thing going on here. So don't think Paul was necessarily annoyed with the girl. Follow me? Okay, verse 18. She kept this up for many days. Finally, Paul became so annoyed that he turned around and he said to the spirit. Now, really fascinating. He's speaking to the spirit, but who's he looking at? The girl, that's exactly right. In the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her. And at that moment, the spirit left. Now, it's really, this is not the point of the message, but I have to at least say, I'd be amiss without making a reference here. The name of Jesus is above every name. And there's like a supernatural contractual agreement here. And when Paul evokes the name of Jesus, can the enemy stay? No. It's beautiful. The enemy is already conquered under the feet of Jesus. He is still making mayhem in many of our lives, isn't he? Yes, but he has already been conquered. And when Paul evokes that name, it literally, it's the verse, it says, I command you to come out of her. And at that moment, the spirit left her. All right, verse 19. When her owners 
realized that, her hope of, that their hope of making money was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to face the authorities. Now, let's just think about this a second. My idea of how to plant a church would be to uh, do something that stirred up the civil authorities so that I get dragged into the center of the marketplace so that we can plant a church. Like, we just fail to think about what is actually going on in people's hearts and minds in the day. Like, God decides to plant a church in the city of Philippi and look at the scandalous way in which he does it. I mean, you, you, you kind of like, God is not afraid of a mess. He creates, Paul creates this big hoopla, and all of a sudden he finds himself, he and Silas, drugged to the center of the marketplace, like the town square, to face the authorities. Verse 20, they brought them before the magistrates and said, these men are Jews and are throwing our city into an uproar by uh, advocating customs unlawful for us Romans to accept or practice. Now, they're basically lying, right? These guys are angry because what, what did Paul and Silas destroy? Their source of income. That's exactly right. So they go and lie, and they actually use the whole Jews thing because the Romans would have been very prejudiced against the Jews. That's right. So that why, that's why all of that is in there. They've created this big uproar. Paul and Silas are at the center of it. The crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Silas, and the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten with rods. After they'd been severely flogged, this would have been with a leather whip, maybe with even things on it, so we're talking no skin on their back, beaten with rods, faces could have been swelled, eyes shut, horrible. They were thrown into prison, and the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. This is our third person, the jailer, so take note. When he received these orders, he put them in the inner cell and fastened their feet in the stocks, like a maximum security situation. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. Now, this is not the point of the message, but I do have to say, when you are in your deepest distress, the key to getting through it is praising God in the midst of it. You might not understand it. You might not like it. You might not agree with it. And it's okay to say all those things. But if you can get to the point where you go, Lord Jesus, I surrender my will before you and I choose to praise you in the midst of it, he will join you in the fire. He will be with you. He will never leave you. He will never forsake you. I'm having trouble going back to sleep in the middle of the night once we check Amelia. My mind starts going, and I can't. It's been 3 o'clock or 4 o'clock, and I can't. I get up early anyway, so I end up just getting up, and I've had these wonderful times, actually, with the Lord. Choosing to worship him when things are painful, when things are difficult, when I'm disappointed, and Amelia's alive, Amelia's healthy, Right? It's so easy for us as people to get focused on what we don't have instead of what we do. It's so easy for us as people to get focused on what God is not doing instead of the relationship with us that he is actively cultivating by what he is allowing in our lives. I promise you that my relationship with the Lord Jesus has benefited even in the last few days since Amelia has been diagnosed because I'm wrestling and praying and interacting and worshiping with him in the early morning hours. And my Jesus will do that same thing for Amelia because he's promised he will not leave her in the fire alone. So back to Paul and Silas. About midnight, Paul and Silas, is verse 25, were praying and singing hymns to God. And the other, I just got to say, these guys are probably so swollen, I can't imagine they can see out of their eyes. They've been beaten with rods. 
They're singing hymns to God, and the other prisoners were listening to them. It's dank, it's dark, it's smelly, it's probably rat-infested, it's disease-infested. They got scabs and blood all over them, and here's the jailer who's over them. The other prisoners are listening to them, including the jailer. Verse 26, suddenly there was such a violent earthquake that the foundation of the prison doors were shaken, and at once all the prison doors flew open and everyone's chains came loose. Here's the jailer, he woke up, and when he saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself. Now in those days, if you prisoners escaped, you would have been killed. Rome would have killed you because he thought the prisoners had escaped. But Paul shouted, don't harm yourself. I love it. Paul's beaten to a pulp, and what's he doing? Don't harm yourself. We're all here. The jailer called for the lights, rushed in and fell trembling before Paul and Silas. He then brought them out and he asked, sirs, what must I do to be saved? The presence of God is so thick and powerful in this place. He goes, sirs, what must I do? He has a moral crisis at that point and comes to the feet of Christ Jesus. He's just been listening maybe from afar to these guys, singing praises to God. And you know what? Get this. Your life in the bad stuff, your life when things are the most difficult, your life when things are, are the most painful and the most disappointing is the most powerful testimony for who God is. It is when the chips are down, it is when things are difficult, it is when you have been beaten with whatever situation you're in and you choose to praise him that he is most evident in your life. And I think it's also in that moment when the Holy Spirit's anointing is on our lives to actually cause people around us to see and to turn their hearts towards him. Because they are like, what gives you this joy in the middle of this terrible mess you are in? That's the gospel. But Paul shouted, don't harm yourself, we're all here. The jailer called for the lights, rushed in, fell trembling before Paul and Silas, and he asked, what must I do to be saved? They replied, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all the others in the house. At the hour of the night, and at that hour of the night, the jailer took them and washed their wounds. Then immediately he and all his household were baptized. And the jailer brought him into his house and set a meal before them. And he was filled with joy because he had come to believe in God, he and his whole household. When it was daylight, all that happened in the middle of the night, by the way, when it was daylight, the magistrates sent their officers to the jail with the order, release these men. And the jailer told Paul, the magistrates have ordered that you and Silas can be released. Now you can leave. Go in peace. And here's Paul, stubborn and willful and standing up till the end. And I love every bit of this little short man. Oh, my goodness. But Paul says to the officers, they beat us publicly without a trial, even though we are Roman citizens, which was a violation of Roman law. And Philippi was a Roman colony, like high Roman society going on in this city. They threw us into prison, and now they want to get rid of us quietly? No way. Let them come themselves and escort us out. Now, I believe Paul was doing this in part to protect the church because he just planted a church in all sorts of scandal and difficulty, okay? And if he leaves quietly, then they can sort of are authorized unofficially to take out the church. But by him making a stand, he is actually making a stand to the Roman authorities, to the magistrates and the people who are over this city in Philippi. And he is saying, no, no, you cannot come against this little church. Verse 38, the officers reported this to the magistrates. 
And when they heard that Paul and Silas were Roman citizens, they were alarmed. They came to appease them and escorted them from prison, requesting that they leave the city. I love this. This is so good. After Paul and Silas came out of the prison, they went to whose house? Lydia's house. Where's the church meeting? Oh, let's say that again. Where's the church meeting? Come on, y'all. The church is meeting at Lydia's house. Okay, can we try that again? Where's the church meeting? There's a church that's been born in the city of Philippi under tremendous adversity, and the church is gathering at Lydia's house. And these guys are beaten to a pulp, and now they've been cleaned up, and they're making their way to Lydia's house before they leave. And what does it say? They met with the believers, and they encouraged them. In their state that they were in, they meet with all these young believers, and they encourage them in the name of the Lord Jesus. And then they left. Holy Spirit of God, I am not interested in my words today, but we are interested in your presence. We are interested in your words. We are interested in lives that would be conformed to your image. Lord, we don't want to be like people who gaze into the mirror of your word and walk away and forget what it looks like, what you look like, what we look like. Lord, would you change us? Would you conform us? And would you allow us, Lord Jesus, to take a glimpse into your heart and how you plant churches? Lord, we praise you in your name. Amen. Okay, so we got three uh, people here that I want to take a look at. Um, so my first point is this, uh, the outward focus of Jesus. Now, let me also say there's four um, core values that Saltbox has. Does anyone, does anyone know those? Anyone? We have four core values. They're on the website. Does anybody know those? Andy, no, call out one if you know one. Outward focused. Okay, thank you, Monica. What? That's a principle right there. She's given us the, the school answer, you know. Okay, outward focused. Thank you. Intelligent in the word. Empowering to all people. And ministry of the Holy Spirit. Yes, exactly. Okay. You can find all four of those core values in this chapter. All four. You can actually find them all through the scriptures, but they're very present in this chapter, and two of them I'm going to use as my main point. So the first thing that we see here is the outward focus of Jesus. So you have Paul and Silas who are on this trip. They're traveling. They're going from boat to boat, island to island, place to place, and God says, no, you can't go here. No, you can't go there. They try to go to this other place. Paul has a vision, and finally he gets in the way he's supposed to go. Heaven's no reveals heaven's Come on, guys. <laughs> heaven's no reveals heaven's? Yes. Oh, good. Okay, we're getting better. Way to go. Um, so heaven's no reveals heaven's yes. Paul gets in the way that he is supposed to go. He is, he's moving in the right direction, and he comes to this place. He gets off the boat in, uh, where is it, verse 11 from Troas. We put out the sea. They went up to uh, Neapolis, and it's about 10 miles from Neapolis to, Neapolis to Philippi, and they walk those 10 miles. Now, when they get there, they go to this place of prayer, okay? So they go in, in to the place of prayer, and there is a group of women, and instead of going into prayer, Paul goes to doing what Paul does maybe best, which is preaching. And there's a lady there named Lydia. Now, 
all of heaven has conspired to get this little man Paul to get to Philippi at this time and at this place so that he can intersect and meet Lydia because she is a one who fears God is what it says. Now, let's, let's talk about Lydia just a second. Lydia is a trader of purple, okay? Uh, purple would have been the most expensive um, garment, high fashion. Um, she, would, she has her own household. Uh, it says nothing about her husband. We don't really know. She actually is the, sort of the head of her household. So what we know about her because of her occupation and because of the size of her house and that she has obviously a servant staff sort of around her, that she is a very wealthy woman. Because she's a trader in purple, the other things we know about her is that she's high Roman fashion. Now, I'm going to drift for a second. I'm going to let you imagine with me because here's what I think, and I can't prove this to you, but here's what I think about Lydia. I think Lydia uh, was a woman of great style. I think Lydia's chariot probably had a little Bentley insignia on it. I think Lydia wore all the latest trends of the day. This is Roman style. This is a Roman city. This is like she is hip and she is in and this is like Coco Chanel rolled in, okay? Like she is, she is like this lady who is in high society, who gets it, who is on the move. Her Instagram, you know, thing has like 40 million followers and she posts a picture and everybody likes it, right? Everybody thinks Lydia is the deal, And they want to buy her clothes. And God says that he's looked into her heart and she is a God-fearing woman. And Paul has, or God has sent Paul and Silas to go and to minister to her. And it literally says that she gives her life. I love it because it actually says the Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. When I use the word gospel, that just means good news. Do you all know that? That's all it means. Gospel means good news. It's the good news of Jesus. So when Jesus says, go and preach the gospel, he's saying, go and share the good news about me. Go and share the good news about Christ Jesus. So sometimes I use that interchangeably, so just make a note. But when she and the other members um, of her household were baptized, so here's what happens. She gives her life to Jesus. We don't know how. Was there an altar call? Did they step to the side and pray? Did she believe? Maybe all of it, I don't know. But she surrenders her life to Christ Jesus, and all of a sudden, she is getting baptized, and not just her, but her entire household, her whole entourage, army of servants and whoever else she has, all get baptized. And then, where do Paul and Silas go with her? Back to her house. Now, this is very important. Jesus is so outward focused that he will call his people to cross oceans, cross mountains, run up roads, track down people to share the life and the love of Christ Jesus. And if there's something that I'd like you to grasp as we look at Lydia, the slave girl, and the jailer, it is this. You cannot trust what you see with your eyes. Because we tend to see someone who's got a Louis Vuitton handbag and a Bentley and a you fill in the whatever else, and we tend, most of us, middle America, to turn up our nose and go, don't we? But God, who does not look with human eyes, looks through all of those things and he goes, this woman is my chosen instrument. This woman is going to actually anchor the church in Philippi. In fact, her big, beautiful, palatial house, I'm going to use that for my church building. I'm going to use that big, beautiful house for the church building, and the church is actually going to gather there. And so Lydia gives her life to Christ Jesus, and he begins to use 
her. The second thing that I want you to see here is the empowerment of Jesus. It's my second point. It is also one of our core values. Thank you, Monica. But I want you to see the empowerment of Jesus because after Lydia, Paul and Silas are literally staying at Lydia's house and it looks like they're going and coming every day and they're ministering the gospel of Christ Jesus. They're preaching and they're sharing and they're going about their thing. And all of a sudden, who starts to follow them? Who's paying attention? The slave girl. I don't know who said it. I heard it. The slave girl starts to follow them. And so she's going around from place to place. Now, let's just talk about this slave girl a second. So um, a slave in Rome is a piece of property. No rights, uh, no self-respect, no dignity. When you're a master of a slave in Rome, you can do whatever you want, whenever you want with your slave, period. They're clearly taking advantage of this young girl psychologically, right? I would also say, this is extra biblical, it's my opinion, they're probably even abusing her physically, This girl has reached a point in her life where possibly her own hurt and her own bitterness and her distrust of who knows, people, men, I don't know, have led her to the point where she is so in such despair that she's now given herself over into the what you would call the occult and there's some kind of demonic influence that's now in her life. But what's amazing is these demons represent, or, or actually um, speak to what Paul and Silas are doing. And they're actually, this, this demon is literally saying, these men are servants of the Most High God who are telling you the way to be saved. Now she's getting ready to have a but God experience. And now it's very important because you have this girl who, in my opinion, has been uh, horribly abused. We know at least psychologically, possibly physically, by her owners or masters. And she's being used by them to make money. And then you have Paul. And people traditionally think Paul's annoyed with the girl. And I totally disagree with that. I I think Paul is actually grieved for the girl. I think his heart is broken that she's living in this situation. I think her heart actually sees into her sort of life and can imagine what her childhood and her upbringing must have been like that she's gotten to this devastated place in which she is, that, that, that she is in this just destitute place. And I think he looks into her heart and looks into her life, and he is so grieved that he is therefore annoyed or angry righteously against the enemy that is living inside of her, and he looks at her and goes, come out. He is not annoyed with the girl. He is not angry at the girl. He is literally looking through her, what is going on, looking into her past. And I think what is um, absolutely key here is uh, this story of the slave girl is parked conveniently between Lydia, who we know became a Christian, and her whole house was baptized. Yeah, when the church met there, that's exactly right. Then we have uh, this slave girl. Then we have the Roman jailer, and we know that the Roman jailer becomes a... Christian, and he and his whole household are baptized. That's exactly right. Now we have Lydia right in the middle, and it's easy to just sort of gloss over, but I think what the author of this book, which is Luke, I think what he's actually saying and what he is assuming that we all know is that when she was delivered of this little demon, she was also uh, converted. She was also saved. And my guess is, and every uh, commentator that I've ever read would suggest that she was probably saved part of that new church and baptized with one of these groups that they were baptizing early on. 
So you've got this girl who has literally been violated and hurt and abused, at least mentally, uh, psychologically, maybe physically, and she's been used to make money, she's been um, hurt, and all of a sudden she's following Paul and Silas, and Paul suddenly looks around and says, come out. And I think what, what Luke is actually telling us is here is the spot at which she is delivered, converted, and saved. Now, it says, at that moment, the spirit left her. And then verse 19 says, when her owners realized that their hope of making money was gone. You want to know what somebody's made of? You touch their, I'm telling you, you'll see it every time. I'm telling you, I'm just telling you. I didn't, this is not a, uh, this is not a, um, a tithe message, but you show me somebody's, I don't ever look at who's tithing and who's not. Just want you to know, never looked, don't, have, don't care, not going to. But you show me somebody's, what they're doing with their money, I can tell you where their heart is. It's a biblical principle. And there's, there's something of such value um, there. I, I, don't, I actually don't think God cares all that about, much about money. In fact, I'd actually say he doesn't care at all about it. He's got it all. Okay? So does he need your money? No. Does he need my money? No. What he needs is your heart and my heart. And one of the greatest indicators is where's your money? It's just the way it is. It's just the way it is. Are you going to take the first that you've been given and give it back to him? And there's a whole group of people that would say, well, Michael, tithing is of the Old Testament. I'd say, you're right. Do you know what's of the New Testament? Radical generosity to the point where you take the shirt off your back and the keys to your home and hand them to your brother and sister. The New Testament demands way more than 10%, let me tell you, brothers and sisters. So you want to stand on that one? Good luck. I'm going to kick that stool right out from under you. <laughs> Radical generosity is the message of the gospel in every arena of our lives. Every arena. Verse 19, when her owners realized that their hope of making money was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and they dragged them into the marketplace. Now immediately the story switches and we've left the slave girl. So we've got Lydia. First convert in the town of Philippi. Y'all are waking with me. Way to go. So God, in from eternity past, looks into the uh, sort of place that earth is at this moment, and he goes, I'm going to use this high society Louis Vuitton wearing lady to anchor and start this first church in her home. And the second person I'm going to add to the mix is this little abused slave girl. You can read all the great church planting literature that's currently out there. Do you think they're going to say to start with somebody coming out of high fashion society? No. Do you think they're going to say to start with somebody who has just been delivered from a demonic oppressive thing living in them and has things and issues that needs to be reconciled and healed inside of them? No. But God, but God, say it with me. Some of you need a but God in your life today. I need a but God in my life today. But my God has actually said, this but God is not going to be my little Amelia getting healed. It's going to be me walking with him in it. That's not forever, just for now. That was an aside. So all of a sudden, the story switches, and Paul and Silas are dragged into this Roman prison. And this brings me to my third point. We have, number one, the outward focus of Jesus. Number two, the empowerment of Jesus, empowering this little slave girl. Number three, we have the concern 
for the individual, which is inherent in who Jesus is. It's the jailer. So let's talk about this jailer just a second. Um, a jailer would have most likely been a retired Roman soldier. Uh, so they would have been engaged in what? Battle. Thank you. And in battle, what do you do? You kill people. That's exactly right. Now, I don't know about you. Uh, nothing against um, slight, uh, slightly built or skinny men. No, no problem there. But if I'm picking the head of a jail, I am not going to put a slightly built or skinny man just me. Not in that day and age. There's no electric doors. You know, there's no to open things up like we have now. No, no, this is like, this is old school. This is brute force. So my guess is this guy's a beast. He's broad chested and he's burly and he's been in combat all his life and he's probably scarred up and he, you know, he just looks at you and you're like, oh, that's my guess about what we have going on here. This dude is a bruiser, and you do not want to tangle with this guy. You don't want him to get his big hands around you. You're just like, oh, my goodness, just stay away. Now, here's my guess is he's probably got a whole array of people that he's killed in combat. You know, when I was beginning the journey of planting salt box, I said, Lord, bring me somebody who's killed a lot of... <laughs> Thank you for laughing. <laughs> now, here's my point. Here's my point. Why on earth would God, from all eternity and all sovereignty and all the people he has at his disposal, grab a Coco Chanel, a slave girl who's been abused, and a big, burly, thick-chested dude who's got a bunch of people that he's killed and say, this is the church in Philippi. <laughs> and that is what he does. And you know what that means? means there's hope for me and that means there's hope for you because God is not interested in a squeaky clean church that looks perfect and sounds perfect and is perfect he is interested in a group of people that is willing to walk and limp alongside one another that is it occasionally offends each other maybe even a lot of times offends each other and can look at him and go Rick I was wrong would you forgive me that's the way of the church, the way of the body of Christ. And what we are building here is not some uh, beautiful thing. That's why we don't have a stage or even the best sound system. That's why we have these great little white cafeteria tables around us. <laughs> well, the day will come, he puts us in a building, I assure you. And I'm going to grimace and go, oh, Lord, I liked our cafeteria. Because <laughs> it's gritty and it's raw and he's in it with us and it's not perfect and things are ugly. Right? But the spirit of Jesus is here. Did you see when Perry was worshiping? Did you see it when he like stepped back from that mic? Did you see it? And he like dug in for just a second. His eyes went down and he dug in just for a minute. And I went, oh yeah, it's getting ready to get good. <laughs> it's getting ready to get good. And then he actually unplugged. I don't know if that was planned or not, but you unplugged. Was that planned? Oh, okay. And then he plugged back in. I was like, oh my goodness, it's going to get good. It's going to get good because it's off the map. Because, see, Jesus shows up off the map. He sent Paul across oceans on boats through caves. Paul's beaten. He's starved. He sends him all the way to go minister to Coco Chanel. Come on! That's how Jesus starts church. And then not only that, he goes, there's this abused slave girl over here that's an absolute total disaster, and we have such compassion on her. Go over and deliver her. And what's he do? 
delivers her. Yes, this is the gospel. And then he gets beaten and tortured. And then he's thrown in jail. And this big, burly, ugly jailer who probably wouldn't think twice about breaking my skinny neck. I'm saying that intentionally. Because this was a surly guy, I assure you. And he's so committed to what he does. The moment those things are, the, everyone's broken free and the shackles are off, he pulls out his sword. And what's he do? He's going to kill himself because he's committed. Committed to the end for Rome. Yeah, 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 that's the deal. And what's Paul say? I love this. I love this because Paul is like, I don't even understand. I'm like going, I'm, I'm actually going, Lord Jesus, would you work this level of love for your people and your bride that the Apostle Paul had into my own heart because I don't even comprehend it. In this moment where he's, I just imagine, he's been beaten with rods, he's been flogged until there's probably no skin on his back. If you've ever had a wound that hasn't been cleaned for a day or two, you, it's crusty, it's gnarly, you can't even move or else it crinkles and hurts. It's like, and if, you're fa if you've ever been beat up and had your face swollen and all shut, it's like all you care about is you. All you care about is you. You don't care about anybody else. Get out of my face and get your needs out of my face. I don't care. I care about me right now. And there's this earthquake. There's this earthquake. And the chains all come off. And this big burly dude that's killed a bunch of people is getting ready to fall on his own sword. And Paul goes, no, no. Paul's not thinking about himself. Oh, 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 that the Lord would build a church here in this funny little cafeteria that chooses not to think only of themselves. Oh, that he would build a church of people who can look up beyond whatever crisis they're currently in and choose to be active participants with him and being a blessing to all those around them. Oh, that he would raise up a church that's outward focused, that, that has hearts that are just so consumed for people out there that they'll go anywhere and they'll do anything and they'll endure anything. Oh, that the Spirit of God would move in this house. The jailer called for the lights and he rushed in and he fell trembling before Paul and Silas. And then he brought them out of this, I'm sure, horrible dungeon. And he said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? This burly, strong, self-reliant, pull-myself-up-by-my-bootstraps man is suddenly on his knees going, Lord, what must I do to be saved? Because the power of Jesus has entered the building, and the love of Christ is evident. And even in the, Paul, even in the way Paul says, sir, 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 stop, that dude probably was the guy who beat Paul. Now go there just for a second. This is probably the guy who was at least part of beating Paul, hurting Paul, torturing Paul. And who is Paul thinking about? The same guy. You see that? Do you see the love of God that exists inside Paul that he could be so uh, focused on who God is working on and what God is doing? That's the, the concern for the individual that I see inherent throughout the Gospels, throughout the entire Bible in the heart of Christ Jesus. Man, I think I've gone long. My last point is the most significant one. And I, I want us to get this. It's really, really important. It's the unity of Jesus. 
Now you got three people. You have Lydia, who's Asian. Maybe not Asian in the way you and I think of Asian, maybe. I don't really know. She's, she's from Asia Minor, though, so she's Asian. You've got Lydia, who's Asian. You've got a slave girl who's, anybody know? Greek. She's Greek. And then you've got this jailer who would have been Roman. So you've got three different nationalities. And the Lord says, I'm going to start a church with three different nationalities. And then you have this lady who's at high society, and then you have this slave girl who's at low society, and you've got this Roman who's probably the sturdy right in the middle class. And he says, I'm going to take all three classes, and I'm going to do what? Start a church. You've got three people who have these different needs. I think Lydia's need would have been theological or for understanding. The girl's need, the slave girl's need, was literally um, um, probably for uh, counseling and psychological and, and help. And then you've got this Roman jailer whose need is literally moral. All of a sudden, I think the walls caved in on him, and he went, oh, what a reckless sinner I am. Would you save me, Jesus? And so all of a sudden, what you have literally going here, you, you probably even have three different languages. Lydia was probably speaking something like Hittite. One of them spoke Greek, and one of them spoke Latin. And all of a sudden, God says, let's bring them together, and let's plant a Come on, let's bring them together and let's plan a church. That's church. That's church. When people come from different places and the Spirit of God sets them free and sets their feet upon the rock and he brings them together and then he starts a church. Now, if there's something I would want us to see and think about. Let me self-divulge here as we wrap this. The thing that I, I dislike the most about myself is when I walk in my insecurity. Every year that is added to my life, I go, I am really insecure. And, and, and I have this greater revelation of my own insecurity. And what I saw when Perry stepped back from that mic was he went, oh, I'm trading my insecurity for the spirit of Jesus for just a minute. And if you watch people, when they begin to lay their stuff down, their own pride, their own thing down, and all of a sudden King Jesus is able to wash over them and fill them, you get powerful church. Now, the Lord brings these three unlikely candidates together, and he brings their families together, and they launch a church. Is it by the book? No. Is it messy? You better believe it. Can you imagine leading a small group with that crew? <laughs> How was your week? Let's all share something good that happened to us. But that's what God does. Like, get this, church. Get this. Wherever you are in this moment, whatever you think about God, whatever you think about church, whatever you think about life, wants to use you and bring you together with a group of people to redeem you and to stop being so focused on whatever it is you're doing or not doing, whatever you failed to do in the past or whatever happened, and he wants to use you to proclaim the gospel to a lost world. He's in this. The Spirit of God is in this. Not because of me, not because of Clive or Ruth, not because of Steve but because there's a heart behind this that goes beyond. We're not doing church by the book. We're doing church God's way.
and it's gonna be messy. And if you want perfect, there's plenty of other perfect churches around. But I want the spirit of Jesus. I want the spirit of Jesus. Every morning, the head of a Jewish household in these days would actually get up and they'd say a prayer and they'd thank God that they weren't a Gentile. Who were our three people we studied? All Gentiles. They'd thank God they weren't a Gentile. They'd thank God they weren't a slave. And they'd thank God they weren't a woman. Who'd God pick? Who'd God pick? Two women and not a slave, and not just a Gentile, but a bruiser beast of a Gentile. And he washed them with the blood of Jesus. And then he took these people and he built church. Let's build church. Are you with me? We're gonna stand and we're gonna, just a minute, we're gonna close in a song. And then Ruth, would you close the service after the song? However you'd like to. I love you, church. God's doing something in our house. Let's stand up and worship him.